And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, this is going to be a fun podcast to record for me because I get to give you some feedback on how people are feeling uh, about the new calculator, the Lifetime Investment Calculator. And I have an opportunity to share some feedback, interesting feedback from the Bogleheads about the work that we are sharing with people like yourself. And then thirdly, I've got some questions that came in. Folks have sent their questions to info at uh, paulmerriman.com, and I'm going to answer a few of those today. But let me just say, if you're not aware that we do have a new lifetime investment calculator, that uh, it just does so many, I think, educational things. It will help you test the outcome of historical markets starting in a good time and ending in a bad, starting in a bad time and ending in a good, uh, putting small amounts of money in initially and then putting more in later, taking money out, taking 3% out, 3 in a 3.2, 3.8, 4.7 uh, in tenths. You can, you can take distributions. You can take them, you can take them fixed plus, plus uh, uh, inflation. You can take them uh, without any inflation. You can take them variable at, at uh, any different uh, any different percentage distribution that you want. And you can stop and you can start. Uh, you can combine over time the accumulation period with the distribution period. It's going to take a while to get this information out. And I had no idea how many people would respond. But I did get a handful. And if they represent the impact for people who are interested in using a calculator. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but it's looking pretty good. One gentleman who is out of the academic community uh, and is working to educate uh, people at the university and the graduate, uh, postgraduate work, uh, had this to say about uh, the new calculator. He notes, I had heard several podcasts of yours alluding to the calculator, so I was very keen on trying it out. I've only started playing with it, but I can already tell that it is one of the most valuable and useful tools your foundation has made available to date, and that's saying something. Moreover, I think you're taking the absolute best approach, namely letting people try it and provide feedback since that crowdsourcing approach is bound to help identify the most common questions and or sought after improvements. In addition, you're bound to hear from a good cross-section of potential users, from folks who are just getting started to late stage retirees, and everything in between. As for recommendations, and mainly speaking as an academic in the habit of thinking about authorship and the like, I'd simply suggest a brief acknowledgement section on the webpage for the calculator. I realize that neither you nor your volunteers do this for praise, but including the names and contributions of the folks behind this would at least allow people like me to know who to be grateful to. And he goes on uh, to thank us uh, for the work and the, and the work of the volunteers and kudos to Craig. And of course, Craig Apple is the young fellow who uh, put this all together. Here's the second one. I've only got three of these that I'm going to share. And by the way, Nothing bad so far. The bad stuff is going to come later in the podcast. Um, 
this is uh, the, the subject is, wow, the calculator. Hi, Paul. I'll get straight to it. The new calculator might really be the best thing since sliced bread. It's amazing. Really simple setup that echoes your teachings perfectly and packs a profound punch. To be specific, I entered a 100% equity all small cap value portfolio, since I'm crazy enough to be interested in that strategy, and to see how erratic some of the distribution years were, like withdrawing 150000 one year and 80000 the next. It got to me to see the value of adding bonds. Sure, you might make more money invested 100% in equities, but the wild distribution ride might run down somebody's sanity. And your calculator really got me to see that. Thank you. And then he goes on with a couple of suggestions. He says, okay, so the calculator is all you said and way, way more. I listened to the podcast yesterday but didn't watch the video or try to find the calculator. My middle son and his wife asked me to sit down and help them learn something about investing this upcoming weekend. The timing of the release was perfect. And while it sounded pretty complex just listening to the podcast, once I went to the website, it was just about the easiest thing I can imagine using. I will email Craig directly but this is so slick. You have every right to be proud of this tool and scream from the rooftop how great this is. Well, and let me just give you a little bit more of what he said. I was listening to a podcast from Stacking Benjamins from July where a guy gave an example of someone who bought a brand new 1980 Corvette for $18,000 as an investment. Today, that car is worth about $25,000. Using your calculator allows me to give my son and his wife this example and show them if that was invested in the market, even just the S&P 500, it would compound to over $10 million. Pretty powerful stuff. So, if you haven't taken a look, I hope you will. It may be that it's a very difficult uh, project to try to describe in, in a podcast. And certainly the, either the, the piece that the four of us did, Chris, Daryl, and Craig and myself, or just Craig one-on-one uh, -on -one with you uh, in his, uh, and he did several uh, pieces uh, regarding the calculator for different kinds of applications. But I think once you get into it, you're going to find it very easy. Let us know how you like it. Let us know how you have, have found to use it productively. And let us know how you would like to make it better. I'm going to do something on this podcast I've not done before. Uh, I'm going to take a thread of comments on the Bogleheads uh, that has to do with the work that we are doing trying to help you. We will have a, uh, a link to this thread so that you can read the whole thing because uh, the whole thing is, I think, 20, 27 pages long, but there have got to be at least uh, a half a dozen interesting lessons and observations about how serious investors uh, process and think about uh, making the decisions that they do. Uh, we'll have a link so that you'll be able to read all of this, but the title gives away a little bit of how they feel about the work that we do. And one of the reasons the work that we do uh, doesn't exactly fit 
with the bogleheads, at least not the traditional bogleheads, is because most bogleheads, I think, believe that in order to get a good return and do the right thing in terms of unit of return per unit of risk, you should simply take the total market index, which of course, as we've talked about many times, is the same thing historically within uh, one-tenth of a percent uh, of the S&P 500. So when many of us started in the 90s uh, recommending small cap value and large cap value in larger portions, uh, uh, percentages of a portfolio. In fact, uh, when I first started working with DFA funds, I'm not even sure the total market index was up and running yet. Uh, it was really the S&P 500 that was considered the way to, to, to index. But the, the, the Bogle belief is that in that total market index is everything you need. But the beliefs go beyond that. And that is that more than likely at the end of the day, uh, all the fancy footsteps and moves and additions of asset classes that we, that we make uh, don't really add any value. Or if they do, it was probably just a matter of luck, not because it was a superior uh, investment strategy. Now, I'd like to think that I don't present our way of investing, first of all, it isn't, it isn't something I developed. This came out of the academic community. So I am taking zero uh, responsibility uh, for the theories and the portfolios themselves. But it's true, we've worked very hard to figure out ways to present the information that would help people understand uh, the implications both in terms of risk and, of course, return. And also, I think we've made it very clear that these things, uh, these extra returns that we, uh, would, we, we expect over the long term uh, do not come when you want them to, which, which is immediately. And, uh, and so we've tried to build realistic expectations. But it is interesting to me that uh, it isn't just the bogleheads that seem to have this, this feeling that it kind of doesn't matter as long as you find a good strategy and just stay the course, you'll be just fine. Now, by the way, you probably will be just fine. And that belief uh, about it doesn't matter that you have a very specific uh, a portfolio, uh, it, 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 it even finds its way into discussions of what's really important. Now, there is no question expenses are important. There's no question diversification and turnover and taxes and, and all of those things are important. But in many cases, the people that are members of this Boglehead group really believe that since it's very simple, you just need to own the total market index or maybe the U.S. and the international total market indexes, that, that it really is you should be focusing on all those other things uh, in order to get what you got coming to you. And that asset allocation uh, isn't all that important. In fact, in one of the threads here, uh, the writer... Uh, mentions the, the white coat investor uh, has a blog that is uh, entitled 150 Portfolios Better Than Yours. And it actually is over 200 portfolios better than yours now, but they don't want to change the title because they've had so many people open that link. But all that study is trying to say is that there are an unlimited, not an unlimited, but there are hundreds of, of what we could even almost call traditional at this point, 
kinds of asset allocation. And it's not just how much in equities and how much in fixed income, but how much in large and how much in small, because after all, the total market index has got a, I don't know, 5 or 6% position in small, which is about a third or 2% in small cap value. So it's not like, like they've thrown small cap value or small cap blend out. It's just how much they choose to put in. And so there are lots of combinations, and the point that they make at the White Coat Investor, and by the way, if you're not familiar with that site, please uh, get to know the work that they do. Uh, while it's built for people in the medical community, uh, it, it is valuable for any investor. But the point is, is to find a strategy that you can use and have the confidence that it's going to work for the long term, understand it. It's easy to understand the total market index. And if you are then confident that that is the index for you, it then becomes more likely you'll maintain the lifetime discipline. Remember, it's knowledge, confidence, and discipline. You need those three things working for you. So they have, in a sense, almost given up the idea that you could do better. Now, that happened before, and it was, it was something that people had a hard time believing back in the mid-20s when a book was written that, that made the case that stocks were better than bonds. That was not something people knew. They didn't believe that stocks were better than bonds. And, and uh, the case that the writer, uh, I don't remember his first name or last name, Smith, the case he made was that from about uh, 1866 through 19-something, let's say for the sake of discussion, 24, um, that stocks have made a lot more than bonds. And, uh, uh, but that was something that was not believed until that popular book. It was a very, it was like a book for retail investors at the time. So, what we believe is it does make a difference. What we believe, and we talk a lot about it in We're Talking Millions, we make the case that everywhere you can find an extra half of 1%, that that can be worth over a million dollars over a lifetime. A million dollars in a combination of more money to spend and more money to leave to others. So we do not take it lightly if one strategy has a return of 10 and another one has a return of 10.5 because we see that if there's a legitimate reason why we believe that that added return is there, and yes, it probably also means there's additional risk, but that that extra half a percent is worth finding. It's easy to find in lower expenses. It's easy to find in lower taxes. It's, there are a lot of ways. Don't pay a load. No, don't pay a load to buy a mutual fund. More money ends up in your pocket. Now, we can't say what each individual fund is going to make, so we can't say that there might not be some load funds that do better than no load funds, but the probabilities are that they won't. Now, what does this all mean? It means that we want to be open and willing to explore the long-term returns of other asset classes other than large cap blend. And we must, we, we must look for sources of information that allow us to see that information going back, if, if we could, 200 years. But if we're stuck with 100, so be it. We'll take the 100. And basically, that's what we have when we look at the numbers for large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value. And obviously, you'd, once you have access to those, you could also dig out the mid cap. But the academics worked 
on the edges when they did that long-term research. The very large, the very small, the very growth-oriented, the very value-oriented. And then the question becomes, is it true that it doesn't matter which of those 150 strat or combinations, portfolios that you built, that you're going to be fine? Well, fine is fine. I have no problem with fine. But what I'm looking for is the probability that it might be, we call it, better than fine. I, my wife and I are extremely happy that we were able to find ways to build our portfolio because, for one thing, it allows us to do good for others with, with that extra money. You know, sometimes all that a person can do to help others, they just don't have the time to do any more than they're already doing, is write a check. And if an extra half a percent can legitimately be achieved without doing something foolish, then I think it's worthy at least the effort to look. Now, last, a uh, couple weeks ago, we wrote an article that ended up discussing the no-nonsense portfolios. But before I get into those portfolios, there's something I forgot to tell you. I am not hot under the collar, by the way. If I, if I feel uh, myself getting excited, it's because I, I love this discussion. I think it's, it's exciting because somewhere in this discussion, there's a fork in the road where people are going to look more seriously at both forks in the road. That's what I think comes out of this. But I do want you to understand kind of the, eh, call it the attitude or the framing of this particular thread. The title of this thread that started this whole discussion is why does anyone listen to Paul Merriman? And, and I did not take that as a challenge because what happened was it opened up a discussion that goes on, as I said before, for 27 pages where there are a couple of things that are very clear. One is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I put people to sleep. That's not good. We're not going to let that happen anymore. Uh, Another, uh, I think, uh, is that uh, there, are, uh, there are holes in some of the things that I understand. I don't, I don't know everything I should know. Uh, and I will share one of those uh, mentions in this uh, 27 pages and explain how even when you know something, uh, it sure sounds like you didn't know it. It was... Uh, it was something that happened to me, and I knew at the moment it happened, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble, <laughs> and it was. So, uh, this does anyone listen to Paul Merriman? Well, I think from what I read, yes, they do. And what comes out of it, if you read it, there is really only one thing everybody seems to agree with. Uh, they may not listen to me, but they almost all think I'm a nice guy. And they all know I'm working hard to help. And they all seem to know I'm not making anything off it. But just because I'm nice, or just because I care, or just because I don't make anything, doesn't mean it's a good idea. So my view is i got to make the case as best I can. Because at the end of the day, I do care. I do want to be nice. And my mother taught me that, by the way. She said, be nice to everybody you meet in life. I do believe that. But I also want your life financially to be better. That is the whole idea. This, this, is, this is not just for my ego. It is because I do think this information that came from Dr. Fama and Dr. French and people a whole lot smarter and more knowledgeable than I. So 
how do I defend myself and make the case that people should take the time to listen or the time to read or, the, or, or whatever? I want to go back to this no-nonsense portfolio table and, there, and, and they are, there's a couple of them there in the information about this particular podcast. Because I, I want you to see the many ways that it does, in fact, make a difference. That, yes, all of those 150 portfolios or 200 portfolios are legitimate. But, again, they're not all looking for the last half a percent. I am. So when I look at table 3A, I see uh, three portfolios that have one equity fund. Super simple. Four portfolios that have two equity funds. Pretty simple. One that has three and three that have four different asset classes. So you're never having to do anything more complicated than put together the four funds. And I know how much simpler that is than what we did to people when we said you, got, you need 10 or you need 13 to include the bonds. But I learned things as I look on table 3A, I learn that from 1970 through 2020, if you got the S&P 500, and we call that the Buffett strategy because that's what Warren Buffett recommends, just put your money in the S&P 500. Supposedly, that's where his money goes for his wife Whatever part of his, his estate goes to his wife is 90% in the S&P 500 and 10% in T-bills. So that portfolio looks over the last 51 years almost the same as since 1928. I think that's remarkable. That does not for one second suggest that that it means that you got 10.7% each year. In fact, you did not get 10.7 once in the 51 years. So what, as you know, you did get were some years you were up 30-some percent, some years you were down 2015. In fact, if you didn't look at, 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 at anything more than the, ca the calendar years, you had one year down 37. But if you looked at 12-month periods, or you didn't even look at the months, you just looked how far down the market went before it went back up, three times it went down over 50% in this 51-year period. And one day it went down 22-plus percent in one day back in... 1987. So I think that's great. I think most people would have enough, definitely have enough over their life if they were willing to trust the stock market. And all of us, bogleheads or mayor, there actually are some people who call themselves merriment heads, very small group, by the way, but it doesn't change the fact that that these are all people who believe in equities in a portfolio. I don't mean all equities all the time, but some equities all the time. And we know that about a third of millennials have no money in equities for the long term. They don't trust equities. So I would be ecstatic if I could get those two-thirds that don't trust equities, to trust the S&P 500, to trust an old man, Warren Buffett, who says this is the thing to do. That would be great. Now, J.L. Collins, by the way, he's got a new book on the market. I'm sorry I don't remember the, uh, the title, but I know his is 
last book is one of the best-selling investment books for beginners in the industry. Boy, would I be happy if We're Talking Millions did as well as J.L. Collins' book. He recommends the total U.S. market. Well, I just talked about this earlier on this podcast. That's about the, about the same return as the S&P 500. In fact, uh, from 1970 to 2020, the total market compounded at 11. So a slight advantage. Well, not just a slight. Three-tenths of 1% is a big deal, too. You can test, uh, you, you can go find out uh, that what that extra three-tenths of 1% makes if, uh, if, if you use the Merriman Lifetime Investment Calculator. Now, we also know that if you were in the total world market, and we, we, we can't attach that particular portfolio uh, to anybody. I don't know a person who says that's the only place you should be. But I do know a lot of people, individual investors, who believe that. They want to have basically large cap blend, but they want it worldwide. And to the extent that they do get a little small cap or merging markets, they do it in a very small piece of the portfolio. But that portfolio made 10.6. So... That's great. Three simple, one fund portfolios that all made between 10 and 11%. In fact, 10 and a 10.6 and 11%. And the beauty is here, you can go back and look on this one table at the return of all three of those portfolios. And Daryl Balls, the guy who does all this great work for us at the, uh, at the foundation. Daryl has broken it out so you can look at the decades because that means you could feel real good if for a whole decade you made a big rate of return, like from 1980 to 1989, 17.5%. 17.5%. Well, there's no do it the next decade, but it did. 18.2% the next decade. Now we know it is possible to have a 20-year period where you're making tons of money. You're doubling your money, what, every four years or so. But there's also a decade that you lost 1%. And there's another decade that you made 5.8%. So it wasn't smooth sailing. It's never smooth sailing. And this table, one table, gives you a bird's eye view of every year from 1970 through 2020. Yes, the numbers are small. If you do it online, you can make them very big. It's very easy. But that's with one fund. How easy could it be? Well, of course, what makes it a little complicated is it doesn't have you transitioning into bonds. But with a target date fund, you've got somebody that not only is putting you into the total U.S. market or the total world market or the S&P 500. That's what they're doing but they're also adding bonds at the appropriate time by their definition. Remember, the definition from these people is you only need large-cap blend, basically. That's their definition of equities. And they're going to have a definition of a glide path that will add fixed income to your portfolio. But let's see if we can up the return a little bit by adding a second fund. Now, it would be dirt simple. It would be oh so simple if all we had to do was add one more stock and have that 
one more stock be a part of a separate portfolio. Or maybe you had a, 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 a list of the 40 best companies ever in the past, and you put together a portfolio that only owns the 40 best companies ever. Now, you would own General Motors as a part of that portfolio, but it's okay. You would have done well. You would have done just fine. Well, you might not have done so well if you, if you just started in the last 20 years. You have to be there for the whole time for it to look so good. But is it possible that we could add a second fund? Well, the second fund that they add at the Bogleheads three-fund portfolio is they add a second fund. And that, by the way, notice three-fund portfolio where the third fund is a bond. And we're not looking at bonds here. We don't care about bonds here. We're only talking about the equity part of our portfolio. So how did the 70% in U.S. total market and 30% in international total market do? It turned out 10.9%. Well, that was better than the S&P 500. It was better than the total world market. It was one-tenth of 1% behind the total U.S. market. Now, you might be asking yourself, how did it squeeze that extra one-tenth of one percent out? Where did that come from? Well, I'm guessing it came from some mid-cap companies and some small-cap companies, maybe even a couple of micro-cap companies, and more value but 10.9, if you built a portfolio with 70% in the total market, total U.S. market, and 30% in the small cap value U.S. only, and we give this portfolio uh, the credit to Fama and French, those are the two academics who brought us all of the major studies on small cap and small cap value and large cap value. And what would that have done for you? It would have taken your compound rate of return up to 11.9%. We are talking if a half a percent means a million, we are now talking about two million extra dollars over a lifetime of saving for 40 years, $6,000 a year, and then for 30 years, taking out 4% a year and, and, uh, uh, and compounding the total portfolio at, uh, at, at six. My point is this. It's going to give you access to a whole bunch more money to spend and to lend and to give away and to leave to others. And we can track all of those same decades. And it's kind of fun to see that because you had that small cap value in the portfolio, that you made 2.5% better than you would have made during the 1970 to 79 period for the total market index and for the break even that you would have gotten in the total market index in the 2000 through 2009 decade, you would have compounded at 2.9% a year. You picked up almost 3% more per year by having that 30% in small cap value instead of international large cap blend. And to give Fama and French a chance to show their colors because they believed in international, they do believe, they're both still living, they still believe in international. So what would have happened if you use the, ta the total world index 
plus the 30%, so 70% total world, 30% small cap value. You've got more diversification. You almost made 11.9. You made 11.8. And that's because we know that over this entire period, remember the total world market was 10.6. The S&P 500 was 10.7. The total was 11 U.S. So the international did underperform. By the way, the internationals were much better in the 70s than the U.S. So if you live through different periods, you might have different feelings about the, about the internationals. But there is another three-fund strategy. I'm sorry, two-fund strategy. And that is the all-U.S. all-value. Half in small, half in large. That portfolio, and we call that, by the way, we take credit for that one. Oh, sure, Larry Swedro could take credit for that one. There are a whole bunch of people who could take credit for that one. But we're going to take credit in this particular case. And here's what we know. Over that 51-year period, the compound rate of return was not 10.7, not 11, not 11.9, not 11.8, 12.9%. So is that about small or is that about value? It's about both. And that is the debate that I'm having with, with the, the folks at, 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 at Bogleheads or other people who want to rely only on the large cap blend asset classes. And I'm not saying that you're not taking more risk. You are taking more risk. But you can look at it. You can look at it one decade at a time. In fact, just for fun, just for fun, I'm looking at the 1970 through 79. 5.8%. Well, let me just look at total, total U.S. 6.3 versus the all-value 13. The 1980 through 89, the total U.S. 17.2 for the all value, 20.2. 1990 through 99, the U.S., uh, again, total market, 17.9. All value, 14.6. It wasn't terrible, but it was still uh, a difference. Then 2000 through 2009, the total U.S. breaks even. The... All value, 6.8. And finally, 13.5 for 2010 through 2019 and 11.7 for the all value. So in two of the five decades, advantage uh, uh, goes to the total market U.S. and in the other three, goes to all U.S. value. Now, I hope nobody's going to sleep because th this just, it keeps getting uh, ex more exciting. Um, three funds, you could use uh, Rick Ferry's three fund strategy. That's basically, by the way, uh, it's called the core four. Remember, the, the, there's a fixed income uh, part of the portfolio. But he does large cap U.S. Uh, total market, international total, and some REITs. And his compound rate of return is 10.9. The four fund for, portfolio, portfolio, including the four U.S. equity funds, that's the Merriman four funds, 12.2. Uh, the four fund strategy, uh, first uh, noted by uh, Trev H. 
who I believe is a Boglehead uh, 12.4, and the All Value Worldwide, which we'll take credit for, All Value All the Time, 12.9. So whether you did All Value US or All Value Global, the same return. So, 51 years on this table, 51 years. And I'm saying that that's probably a longer period of time than most people look to determine what their return has been, okay? But as you know, we have taken the data back to 1928. And I'm not going to bore you with any more numbers today. I know you, you, you hate this stuff when I go on and on and throw these numbers out there. But the table, can be, the table is so easy to read because it's every year's return. Every, it's also broken out in five-year periods here to look at. Uh, but then also the compound rate of returns for those decades. So, going back. Why does anyone listen to Paul Merriman? Well, I think, and I hope the reason they listen to our work, it's not about Paul Merriman. Who should listen to Fama and French? And if you think the work that we're doing with two funds for life, my question is, who should listen to Chris Pedersen? Or if you're interested in building using the numbers behind all of these tables from 1970 through 2020. Now, I'm going to say not every one of these portfolios are in the lifetime investment uh, uh, calculator, uh, but most of them are, not all of them, or I'll say at least many and more. Uh, but you can see the impact over that period of time of putting away $1,000 a year, $100 a year, taking out $500 a year, $5,000 a year, adjusting everything for inflation. You can slice and dice. You can start in a bear market and you can end in a bull. You can start in a bull and end in a bear. You can look at the whole period, half the period, a quarter of the period, and see what the implications would have been to your financial future. And I do not want to overlook the, the work of Daryl Balls in putting together all of these tables and finding so many new ways to turn them inside out in the hopes that we create more knowledge, in the hopes that we create more confidence, and certainly in the hopes that it helps in staying the course. And I cannot forget the work of Rich Buck, because without Rich Buck, who's been writing with me or for me uh, since, uh, well, I don't know, almost 30 years now, and continues to work with me, helping to make the written word coming out of our organization better. And of course, we now have Craig Apple to add, add to our list of people trying to help you have a better financial future. I'm going to read a complimentary uh, paragraph and while it's written about me, it's really about the organization. And when I think of all the folks, including Margie, who, is, who, who does all the, the work on the, on the, on the website and, and uh, putting all that up there, arranging it, and, and, um, uh, and, and, and her daughter uh, helping us with... Uh, uh, all the all the social media, and of course, uh, Asia Griffin, who's been working with us since 2012 as the director of marketing. Um, she's just, they're all, they're all dedicated people. And here's what, great to be outdoors. Uh, that's the name of the person who wrote this in this, why does anyone listen to Paul Merriman? 
First of all, investing is a marathon, a long-term horizon. A 15-year look back is nothing. Check back in 30 years. Second, he's not advocating for all small value. It's just a tilt to small value, and the amount of the tilt is dependent upon the investor's total equity allocation. Third, he's a nice guy. Well, when I said this is not just about me, there is not a person that I mentioned out of our organization who is not a nice person and fun to work with and dedicated to helping the people who follow our work. Great to be outdoors goes on. He says, if you'd make a post asking that question here, why does anyone listen to Paul Merriman? Why don't you reach out directly to Paul and ask him? Have you viewed his videos on YouTube? He freely shares his knowledge and experience and offers a view that is different than that of the crowd. He's not forcing anyone to purchase or invest in his suggestions. His suggestions don't say, the best portfolio in the world, now do they? There is no best. There are good and better, but best? Even your suggestion that the three-fund portfolio is the best can be disproven if one did enough research and cherry-picking of the best-performing asset classes over the last 15 years. Did I mention Paul is a nice guy? He responds to questions and he is paying it forward by teaching classes at a college in Washington State. How many 75 plus year old retirees do you know spend their retirement teaching to educate others? You should check out his website and stop complaining you don't like the portfolio he designed? Great, we heard you. But no one is forcing you to implement it in your own portfolio. And to great to be outdoors, uh, thank you. That uh, Those are kind words. And again, they're not just for me. I would like to believe if you were, I do, I do know that if you sat through any meeting of our organization, you would know the commitment that uh, our folks have to helping others. But I do want to, I want to say something that you might have overlooked. Yes, I introduced a portfolio decades ago titled the ultimate buy and hold strategy. And every year we updated it and we wrote about it. And every time we wrote about it, we made it clear that the ultimate is not your ultimate. It is my ultimate. I knew, I knew when looking at those 10 asset classes that are in the ultimate buy and hold strategy, which is the way my own money is managed by somebody who takes care of it for me, that all I had to do was tweak it to make it better. Because I decided I wanted 10 great asset classes. The S&P 500 large cap blend, the international large cap blend that are sitting in, the, in those total market indexes, those are great asset classes. But so is small cap value. So is international as well as US small cap value. Emerging markets, REITs, they all have a history. And oh, while I, after mentioning REITs, I've got to mention, if there's one asset classes that, that people would have said, thumbs down for 2021, it would have been REITs. Uh, check it out, how they're doing. So, my belief was, I can't say when these 10 asset classes are going to be star performers. And yes, it is obvious from the all of the research when I put it together that if people put all their money in small cap value, that that would give the highest return. But I also knew 
the, the, the ride would be too much for most people. Would be for me. So I said, okay, you all get equal. You're equal partners in this attempt to build this portfolio, this business. I think of it as the Merriman business. We got a whole bunch of people working in our business, over 15,000 companies. And there's some people there that may not be very nice. That's what happens when you have 15,000 companies in your business. And that's what I'm trying to get young people to do, is to open a business, start a business, start putting money into their business for the long term. That's all I've done. And that ultimate meant that was as far as I wanted to go in trying to hit it out of the park. I felt I would hit it out of the park for our, for our purposes doing that. And I have said many times, I was too conservative, too conservative in building my ultimate buy and hold and how I invested and how much bonds I have in my portfolio. Anyway, my point is this, it is worth the time and effort to understand how to put together a portfolio in your best interest. And here's what I know. I know for first-time investors that if you sent them a copy of my free PDF of We're Talking Millions, 12 Ways to Supercharge Your Retirement, that they would know most of what they need to know. Now, I hope you don't unsubscribe because for those who stick around, we are going to have a special celebration at the end of one year of the introduction of We're Talking Millions because for that celebration, I am going to do a piece, not about $12 million decisions, I'm going to find $20 million decisions for people to consider. And of course, always the younger you are, the easier it is to give you that kind of great advice. But it all comes with the disclosure that I still don't know the future. I don't know what happens after I die. I don't know how I will die. I don't know how many years I have to live. I know how I feel about all those things. And I know when it comes to sex, food, and money, they are not intellectual decision-making processes. They are driven by emotions. Oh, I don't mean we don't intellectualize why we're doing what we're doing because we want to. And all I'm trying to do, along with the help of Rich and Chris and, 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 and Craig and Daryl and, and, and Margie and Renee, I mean, all these people, Asia, what we're trying to do is to show you a way that is not only good enough, because 10% would be good enough in equities, but is enough better that you are not only going to change your life, but you're going to change the lives of others. And at some level, I guess that's what this process is all about. Do no harm. Well, I'm not going to tell you my list of rules, life rules, but certainly being able to help others is one of them, and I believe that's the case. Uh, in fact, everybody who's working for this organization, whether they're being paid for it or they're doing it for free, and particularly the ones who are doing it for free, we know they're not trying to make money on this deal. It's not putting food on their table. Come join us in any way that you can. But the most important way that you can, can two things to do for us. Become a better investor for yourself and your family, and then help us reach others with the information that we share.
Sorry if I got a little louder today, but I want to quit putting people to sleep. That's one goal I have now that I know I'm doing that to people. And oh, by the way, if I'm still putting you to sleep, turn up the speed. It'll go so much faster. Thank you, as always. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.